I'm Thorne Dreyer, and this is RAG Radio. Uh, RAG Radio comes your way every Friday afternoon on Co-op, uh, 2 to 3 p.m. Co-op is a... Uh, a is an Austin radio station, 91.7 FM, uh, that's uh, all-volunteer community radio station that's solar-powered, and most important, it's cooperatively run, the only cooperatively run radio station in the country. Um, with me in the studio are uh, Tracy Schultz. Uh, hey. Tracy, how are you? <laughs> doing well, doing well. How are you We've doing? been going crazy because we were trying to establish uh, a phone connection. Which yeah, just got. a little behind the scenes, you know, like <laughs> whatever. But we're, we're connected now. Susie, Susie Sheeler is with us, too. Hello. Hello, Susie. Um, we, I do want to mention Carl Davidson is our guest. Carl, are you there? Yes, I am. Oh, yay! It's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> but before Carl is a longtime friend, uh, leading leftist thinker, writer, uh, and um, and activist. So, but an organizer, whatever, all of these things. Former new leader of the new left. I'll, but I'll, these days, I call myself a griot. I'm getting too old. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, I do want to mention. You know, we have a number of outlets around the country. We have a new one. Uh, and I want to give them a shout out. You can now catch RAG Radio on WALHradio.com in Wilmington, Ohio. It's streamed. Uh, the show is, they stream the show Thursday at 8 p.m. and again at midnight. So that's Eastern time. So we want to, we want to welcome them to the, to the uh, syndicate. Cool. <laughs> and uh, so very, very cool. All right. Um, Carl Davidson is a leading leftist thinker, political organizer, longtime friend and colleague. And every year or two, we ask him to meld minds with us, hoping he might have a better handle than we do on what's going on in this crazy world. And I love this. I, I asked him basically for some things he'd like to talk about. And Carl said, what's on my mind? That's a dangerous question. <laughs> he said, Trump's meltdown and the dangers with it. Trying to find a good handle to engage the new left with solid next left with solid revolutionary education, the new book Ramp Hollow, which does a wonderful neo-Marxist analysis of Appalachia, uh, the Netflix series Babylon Berlin, which which he says he just binged through, and the new film The Young Karl Marx, which you must see. He says uh, that was he was speaking to me. Um, oh, see, I had to mix up politics and culture there. Yeah, yeah and, and you I did know a, that's where you are. That we, you did an excellent job. Uh, and we'll talk about a lot more of that, including some current events like the West Virginia teacher strike, maybe. Yes. Uh, and uh, Newsflash, the, uh, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the new uh, Korean uh, tete-a-tete. <laughs> So, yeah, well, Trump took my advice. Yeah, he did, didn't he? Uh, yeah, I, you know, if more people would take your advice, Carl, I want to That's say... Right. We've been in a hell of a lot better shape. Carl Davidson is co-chair of the Committees of Correspondence for Democracy and Socialism, a national board member of Solidarity Economy Network, and was the founder of the Online University of the Left, is a local Beaver County, Pennsylvania member of Steelworkers Associates. Is this all, is this all still true? Yeah. Carl works with uh, Progressive Democrats of America. He's the author of several books, has contributed to the RAG blog, has been our frequent guest, uh, and also blogs at Keep On Keeping On. In the I, 19th, and now I'm a DSA member, too. Oh, and he's a member of DSA. Yay! Yay! Yay. <laughs> <laughs> da uh, Davidson was a leader of the New Left, serving as Vice President and National Secretary of the Students for Democratic Society, SDS, and was a writer and editor at the Guardian Newsweekly. That's the U.S. Guardian, not the British one. So that's so they know who we're talking to, Carl. Yeah, well, that, that about <laughs> covers it. <laughs> okay, well, I, my, my, dues. my first question, and, you know, you started to answer it. I mean, I mean, what is it you're doing these days more than uh, other than uh, binge watching Netflix? <laughs> <laughs> I binge watch Netflix to clear my brain, brain after working all day. Oh, Basically, uh, I, I do I'm too. Working, <laughs> I'm working on a um, a webinar which I teach on the life and th th and and various theories of Antonio Gramsci, and um, we're just about seventy five percent through it. And um, you know, it's uh, multimedia. You know, I, ca I have a lot of pictures and everything, and I'm I'm going to deliver it online and record it um, until I get it perfect, and then. Um, and then uh, people will be able to run it any time they want. But I'll do it live for a number of sessions in the beginning. Probably it'll 
probably be done in six hours altogether, three two-hour sessions, where people will be able to interact and ask questions and stuff as we go along. Tell, tell us just so that, briefly. So that's, what I'm, uh, that's what's taking my time at the moment. For just very quickly, tell us why Gramsci is important. Uh, Gramsci, uh, by our adversaries on the right, is considered the most dangerous communist ever. Um, and, it's, and it's not because of um, he's a bomb thrower or anything like that, quite the opposite. Uh, he's probably the most sophisticated Marxist for understanding how to transform um, European and North American society. Um, he understood very on I mean, he was a big supporter of the October Revolution and everything, but he was a, in the middle of the 1920s, he, understand, he understood that while the Russian Revolution was very important and he was solidly with it, he had to do, uh, change, his, change his viewpoint from looking east to looking west. And he understood that the you know, capitalism in the west was far different from what was in Russia. So he made it his business when he was in prison to do a deep analysis of all uh, the aspects of, you know, he mainly focused on Italy, but he also wrote on, on the U.S. as well, of how, uh, what kind of strategy and tactics was needed in, uh, in the kind of society we have today. So in that sense, I call him Mao for the West. You can, you know, <laughs> like what Mao Zedong did for China and the right, you know, right. feudal peasant society. Gramsci uh, started for a sophisticated society like the United States. Are you doing and that's this? Why the right, that's why the right wing is so fearful of him. In Are fact, you? they think he's already taken over. Or <laughs> 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 his followers or his acolytes have, you know. Yeah. I, I, I posted an article the other day on my uh, Facebook page from this right winger that said the Gromsky and cultural Marxists have already taken over the Democratic Party and the universities and everything else. But and warning people of the dangers of Gramsci. I wish we had gone that far, you know, but <laughs> he had the plan down right. It's just that we hadn't gotten as nearly as far as he thought we had. Are you doing this through the university, uh, the online university of the left? Yes, I'll, I'll do it. Uh, that's how, where I'll first present the, uh, you, you go to the online university of the left, we have a section there called live classes. So I'll post it there, the links to it and everything. And I'll advertise the time ahead of time and, then you can you can sit down and you can watch it on your phone or your TV or your tablet, or you could take your phone and and you know broadcast it to your TV, big TV, and get a bunch of friends and and watch it together. And can you bin, Can you binge watch it? <laughs> um, later on, you'll be able to binge watch it after I save all three parts. And then can them, you will be, a, yes, you will be able to watch the whole thing. <laughs> Netflix, watch out. Um, okay, you know, I did sort of promise people that we would let, that you would sort of give us some insight into the curious state of the world. Um, okay. but, but that's that's a large topic, I think. Uh, why, why don't you said you wanted to talk about Trump's meltdown and the dangers. With, talk, talk to us about Trump a little bit and how you well, see. That's, that's part of the you know, nationalist. That's part of what's going on, and it has to do with the world too. You know, you know, a lot of people um, try to um, make little of uh, Putin and the Russians' uh, interference in the elections, and and I, I can understand that. I think you know the uh, the election was won by only uh, thirty five thousand votes in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Ohio, and so if thirty five thousand votes had gone the other way we'd have a different president. So what that means is that any theory you want will explain those 35,000 votes. <laughs> right. So you can say the Russians did it, or you can say Hillary did it by her stupidity, or you could blame it on the Workers' World Party or whatever, <laughs> the Green Party, whatever you want. They all, they, you know, because of the, you know, it was such a narrow, teeny margin, you only had to sway a few thousand votes in each of those states. That all all of them are correct. So all of the so, theories, and so, take away any one of them, and it would have yeah, take, <laughs> it no, would have changed. You know, it, so. Take away one, it was some of the, one or the right. other, and you can blame it on Putin, you can blame it on the Green Party, whatever you want. Right. You know, I I tend to blame it on the uh, stupidity of Hillary's um, uh, campaign, and uh, you know, you know, the regular Democrats just you know do not understand what's going on. And the, the need to tap into insurgencies, they tend to want to 
block inter- insurgencies rather than tap into them. And um, so I, that's that's where I would put the blame. But in any case, um, that aside, the fact remains, completely apart from that, that Putin has been trying to construct um, throughout the world a new right-wing populist international uh, with himself at the head of it. And uh, he's interfered in the elections in every country, in Europe, in France, in Italy, uh, Scandinavian countries, former East European countries, and so on. And uh, with some success, you know, in Italy, the right-wing populists just took over the other day. And uh, so I'm sure his uh, playing footsie with Trump is is part of his overall scheme. Uh, He wants to break up, you know, break up some of the old alliances of the, the new Russian... You know, it's it's you know I don't know what you want to call it, imperialist power really um, is rising and he he wants a bigger share and he wants to break up the old alliances so that's creating chaos uh, and uh, normally if they had somebody like you know a staunch cold warrior like Hillary in there or something he probably wouldn't be able to get get as far with some of this stuff or not even Hillary take anyone Obama or John Kerry or whoever but. Uh, um, with Trump, uh, Trump has uh, created uh, with his. Trump came to power with an alliance between uh, with uh, the right wing cop, uh, populist bloc and the uh, Christian nationalist bloc and the neo, and the far right of the neoliberal bloc, and it's highly unstable. And uh, you can see it, you know, just about every day. Like just you know, two days ago, you know, Goldman Sachs. Which was is part of the neoliberal bloc, you know, resigned because they were disgusted with um, Trump's uh, um, populist nationalism on the economy, going in for protectionism and um, the new tariffs on that. You know, that's anathema to them. And uh, so, what's going on uh, at the top is the contention between the ruling bloc, which is highly unstable, and it's and it's a crisis of hegemony, really. Uh, and it's it's put the U.S. in a very weak position, and uh, other country, other powers uh, centers in the world are um, not necessarily directly take China. They're just pushing their own selves forward and filling in the gap, like China. You know, the U.S. pulls out of the uh, of the climate accords, and so China has just assumed leadership of it, and decided that they're going to be the leader in green technology for the next fifty years. And uh, just pushed Trump aside. Along with well, California. They, they, <laughs> yeah, they didn't, they didn't even have to push Trump aside. Trump walked out and they just walked in. Right. So, there's, you know, I, I sent out my newsletter this morning. I, I titled it uh, uh, um, Chaos in the White House, Great Disorder Under Heaven, Change is Coming. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah. so that's, the question is what kind of change? Sure. That's exactly right. Because <laughs> uh, you you nailed it. What kind of, and that's up to us. Yeah. So yeah. And we have a role to say in uh, what kind of change it's going to be. Okay, uh, this so. may be a good time. We need to take a break. Uh, uh, we take two breaks during the show, and right. uh, and we're going to take one right now. Uh, we're talking with Carl Davidson. I'm Thorn Dreyer, and uh, this is Rag Radio. Two, one, two, three, four. <laughs>
Okay. And that's all we're saying here, right? Oh, I love that. You know? yeah, isn't that wonderful? But, uh, I, heard, and uh, I, just was, I was just imagining that all of them being right here in this room. <laughs> well, I, I remember uh, we were in Washington, D.C., in one of the big demonstrations, the moratorium, I think. It was more than half a million people there. And uh, I'm standing in the middle of it. And all of a sudden, everybody starts singing uh, all we were singing, you know, that song right there. And uh, some of the people around me say, oh, that's too liberal, blah, 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 blah. And this old Trotskyite from the, from the, on the Guardian staff, <laughs> I mean, Herb Biden, he said, wait a minute, he says, just listen. And she says, it's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so we all decided to, you know, put our old leftists and not a little bit of enjoying it. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. I, I should mention, I want to remind people again that we're talking with Carl Davidson and we're kind of figure out what's going on with Trump and with the world and... Uh, and maybe maybe we'll talk a little bit about, you know, Netflix, <laughs> a little culture. I love the, the the way in your newsletter that you always have. You also have movie reviews and whatever. I got it not long before I left for the station today. Mm-hmm. So it's very. Yeah, we did the Black Panther today. Yeah. There were so many reviews of the Black Panther. I waited until I got a hard hard line older black revolutionary to read it. Uh, but Frank Chapman from from Chicago, uh-huh. and uh, so he had written a review for a Maoist uh, um, newsletter, and I thought <laughs> it was pretty good. So I ran his. <laughs> yeah, you've run, you've even run some stuff, uh, some move of some television reviews from the Ragwalk right, too. Right. Of course, so you know, because television, you know, a lot of people don't go to the theater anymore; they watch other movies on TV. Right, right. Um, okay. I love the international context that you gave us, uh, and and the the, the 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 idea of Trump as the sort of the leader of the new populist right. I think that's so on target. Um, what about what he's doing? Because he's a little different from everyone else. A little, <laughs> a little, says Susie. Uh, and and it's I guess one of the things because you know there, we suddenly truth is kind of out the window. Uh, facts are out the window, and uh, there was a wonderful article I read uh, in the New York Times. I can't remember the, you know, what I, I what I read, what I learned from reading the newspaper for three months or so. I, or, she, the, the author went offline mostly and basically got news from uh, the New York Times, uh, and, and it was the New York Times and a couple of other sources, and talked about the difference. What you get on cable television and how all you're getting, you know, the first stuff you get is analysis. You right. get lots of early bad information. Uh, he said, and said that I'd much rather wait and wait till the next day when people have sort of put it into some, <laughs> puts made some ardor to it. But, uh, I, you know, that's, that's the question. The larger question is, are, have we turned some kind of a crazy corner? Well, you know, Alvin Toffler, um, who's a... Uh, inspiration of mine from way back. He wrote Future Shock and The Third Wave and stuff like that. He uh, he predicted this one time ago, and he called it the a demassification. Um, that the mass media that we knew when we were kids, you know, the three main channels, and that was about it. Educational TV, maybe, was based on the on a one to many model, and. Uh, where we all became consumers of the of the same thing, and you know, Walter Cronkite uh, was a dominant feature uh, that we all shared, or the Saturday Evening Post, or or something like that. But because of technology, where our model for media now is many to many, which means you, know, you can be both a consumer and a producer at the same time. That's what you guys are doing. Uh, with the rag blog and with the rag radio, you get to be a producer, and so it's many to many forms of communication. And what what Toffler said that this would result in is that people would be regrouped into smaller clusters based on uh, different tastes, and and many of their um, you know silos, if you want to call them that, would would be completely alien from each other. So that's you know my my. Uh, viewing habits as I watch Morning Joe on MSNBC early in the morning, and I don't even watch all of it, maybe an hour or two. And then uh, I watch Fox News uh, in the afternoon, basically to see what they thought of Morning Joe. If I want real news, I, I go to the BBC. And uh, 
Otherwise, I have a you know I you know I have a list of online publications I subscribe to the Financial Times, New York Times, stuff like that, uh, Wall Street Journal, where I go to get real news. So, so you really can't rely on these. I mean, if you're a kind of a person who gets addicted to, you know, the the porn actress scandal and want to follow every in and out of the legal case and see if she beats Trump, as it were. <laughs> you could sit and watch. You can sit and watch MSNBC all day long, but uh, and some people do. <laughs> but in any case, we have a radical, and as a result, we have a fragmented electorate. That's um, quite you know. The, I have people you know around here. Fox is hegemonic, and only a minority watch MSNBC, and, and just about everybody, at least among uh, I would say the white white folks. They all watch, you know, Fox, and said, "That's the only reality." My sister, she just watches Fox, and so she thinks that that's what's really going on. I can't watch it. I can't (laughs) watch it, Carl. I just can't. It just—I want to throw things. It's bizarre. (laughs) I want to throw things. It's like an alternate history, you know, one of those alternate science fiction history where the Nazis won the Second World War. (laughs) (laughs) The man in the high castle. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, which I watched on Netflix, by the way. I did too. <laughs> I like the book better, though. I have to say, I would imagine that's anyway. generally the case. But yeah, that's what's going on with media is the demassification, and he predicted it about fifteen years ago that this would happen, and now it's right there in front of us. Yeah. Uh, okay, back to Trump himself. You referred mm-hmm. to Trump's meltdown. Trump himself, although we have to real, we have to acknowledge the fact that Ky- that Trump just didn't come up out of, you know, uh, out of the dirt, <laughs> as it were, pop up like a weed. I mean, right. it, he was really the product of, of I think, of many years of right wing uh, Republican. Oh, his father, his father was a Klan member. Um, his father raised him on religious right, and he comes from. Queens, and he tried to. He went to military school, and he tried to uh, adopt this tough guy um, persona. And then he tried to, um, but he tried to break away from that and make it in Manhattan. And so he he uh, he tried to, you know, curry up to all kinds of celebrities and movie stars and whatnot throughout his life. And and uh, he created this persona of himself as this very smart, Cosmo- uh, rich, cosmopolitan. Yeah, actually, actually, he's not a very good businessman, to tell you the truth. <laughs> Somebody figured out if, they, if he had taken his father's inheritance and simply put it in index funds and let it ride, he'd be much richer right now than, <laughs> than any, anything else. Then building giant temples uh, to, his, his to honor himself. Today, his real yeah. problem today is not, is not uh, Putin interfering in the elections. His real problem is, is for years, uh, going back to his uh, Atlantic City days and everything, he's he's gotten himself in trouble financially, huge amounts of debt, and he's been bailed out by the Russian mob. And uh, so they've given him hundreds of millions of dollars. I, bought, I forget how many floors of Trump Towers in New York they own. And uh, they do this. So they made him their front for uh, laundering all kinds of money. And... Uh, so that's the real scandal behind it. I and mean, all that was going on long before he ran for election. And uh, so he's he's desperately worried that all that's going to come out. And uh, it is going to come out. Um, and you, the question you know, is, uh, go ahead. You know, what are, you know, the question is, what's the country going to do about it? Right. I mean, we've had presidents before who've been hooked up with the mob in various ways, like, you know, Nixon and B.B. Verbozo and so on. But... Uh, this is the first time they've been hooked up with a mob based in a, in a rival superpower. Right. So that that that's why they're so. That's why the you know the so-called deep state is so freaked out about Trump. <laughs> you know, they, I think they really believe that Putin's got something on him and he's got him in his pocket. Yeah. Uh, I, I the only way that I can really kind of look at Trump, his family, and the circle, the inner circle, and whatever is as an organized crime family. Yeah, that's once you once you look at it from that frame frame, then everything starts to fall into place. And and the Kushners are just as uh, you know. The, he has that sweet innocent face, but you know that his whole family is just as corrupt. 
you know, Trump yeah. makes fun of him sometimes. He says, oh, he's a great guy to, he's a great guy to, to, to make peace in the middle East. He knows every crook in Israel. <laughs> yeah, that's what Trump says about him. <laughs> he knows a few here, too. Yeah. Um, so, so what I do think you... Trump, Trump's got mental problems, too, obviously. He's a narcissist, and, and he's a, uh, extremely insecure. He's got to be the best and the greatest at everything. And, I mean, it's just, and, and some, if, it wasn't so, if it wasn't so ridiculous, and you, you'd have to feel sorry for him almost sometimes, and, uh, you know, that he just, can't, he just can't cope. He's over his head. But, you know, you feel sorry for him, but, but what, what can he really do to us? You know, other than he's already changed, he's changed that he's made stuff commonplace. He's moved things into the mainstream that used to be way, way, way out on the edge. Uh, And I don't know if that, I don't know if that turns around. That we have to, we have to stand against that. We can't allow him to normalize, uh, you know, white supremacy and white nationalism and all that. You You have to take a strong stand against it. And then, you know, come the next election, you know, we've got to vote for you know, just about, I should want to say every Democrat, but just about every Democrat. There's a few of them who you, you just might as well vote for Trump, just vote for them. But, um, you know, selectively go out there and just make the make the blue wave happen. And if we can elect a few socialists along the way, that's fine. But mainly we've got to crush them. <laughs> you know, so you got your marching orders there. Now, now you know, first time, last, first time I started talking to you, you only had, you had this little, little, um, island in the vast sea of texas but now you've got these huge dsa chapters all over and all the main cities in the state so you got you got your work cut out for you <laughs> yeah yeah and it's all up to us right here no what's very interesting dsa and we've talked we talk about it on the show and we often have people who are associated with it they're now over 800 members in austin Right, and, right. and by the time i even ask that again it'll be a thousand i mean it's just, right and uh, but you know, people talk about Austin as being the island, but really, to me, it's it's a metropolitan areas versus rural areas in Texas. Right. So, right. Susie, were you going to say something? No, I agree completely. I think I think uh, DSA has definitely got a, uh, got its hooks in us. I hope I hope that we continue to grow. And I think you're right. We'll we'll probably hit a thousand here by the you know by but probably the, the spring. The main thing is that it's become this incredible umbrella for all kinds of very serious uh, activism, you know, exactly. whether it's around health care. You know, they, it played, DSA played a major role. You, you know, Austin just, uh, uh, all Austin uh, government workers now have paid sick leave. Small businesses, small businesses. And, and that's, that's a big, big, big deal. It was a big, big fight. Uh, and the immigration issue here, of course, is so strong. Um, but anyway, yeah, there's, there's the, the main is, thing, not DSA so. necessarily, but the young people, the fact that there's yeah. so much energy and so much activism, uh, right. among young people in this country now, and now it's down into the high schools. Right. GOP isn't and helping it's, itself. It's, by we haven't, we haven't seen, seen this kind of an organization on this kind of scale since uh, 1940 with, uh, with the communist party under Browder. When you had maybe fifty, hundred thousand active members in the party, and they they could have a you know, they probably had hundreds of people in uh, in um, Austin back then, you know. But uh, and uh, when when you have people on that scale, you can do things like you know, there's a chapter in um, the East Bay that has nearly a thousand members, and they were and working with a few other chapters, they were. They had went out canvassing for a single payer, and they were able to put out uh, 2,500 canvassers on one Saturday afternoon, and uh, covered the whole territory, all the all the registered voters and everything. So that you, your ability to do something on a scale that's far above um, you know the things we did before this breakthrough came, and it's, and it's not finished yet. They're up to 33,000 now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, nationwide so that's yeah. pretty good yeah. and they're all young and they're in dire need of a revolutionary education and they can teach us a thing or two too. yeah the, yeah and, I, and like i had to learn all these new pronouns you know <laughs> we might not be able to make it into the door of meetings anymore well for one thing there's such a crush and also i don't know how seriously we're taken <laughs> so but anyway yeah I, I mean i i'm interested in the grassroots 
whatever through whatever organization our revolution indivisible. Did you learn to twinkle yet? Huh? Did you learn? Did you learn to twinkle? I no, you know, I'm that, not twinkling. That's, that's where you wiggle your fingers instead of clap. Oh, I hate that oh, I've stuff. Seen that. <laughs> I hate that stuff. I hated it with Occupy because it seems to make it look like a cult <laughs> to me. But no, I I don't twinkle. Well, okay. <laughs> let me let me make clear. <laughs> twinkle. That was with a W. That's all right. That's right. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, we're, we're in a different space, and uh, we can now do things on an appropriate scale. That. Uh, and, you know, like we already won two seats in uh, Pittsburgh with the DSA. And one of them we won independently. We, the other candidate was endorsed by both the Republicans and the Democrats from an old-time um, family uh, dynasty in Pittsburgh. And we ran a young Iraq vet, and uh, young who just passed the bar exam. And we ran him for judge against this entrenched conservative guy and uh, beat him. You know, they didn't know what hit him. That's what's that's what's so interesting. Three hundred DSA volunteers out working the uh, working the, the neighborhoods, knocking on doors. Yeah. No one hit them. We did a show with Lee Carter, and it was a great show. Uh, but Lee yeah. Carter, you know, was elected to the Virginia House of Delegates uh, as openly a, a, a Democratic Socialist, and right. he beat like the whip of the house, I think, who had big, big bucks. I mean, it was, a, it was such an amazing upset. But there were right. upsets like that all over the country. Right. Uh, and, and we can expect more. And we can expect a lot more, I should think. So, anyway, so that that's that's covers pretty much covers the politics of it. The West Virginia teacher strike, I should say, is, is a is very uh, significant event for a whole number of reasons, you know. Um, you know, there, there were some reports about how at the end they were on a wildcat strike. But really, you have to understand that in the, in the state of West Virginia, teacher strikes are illegal. So the whole damn strike was illegal uh, and against the law. And um, it was a, ma- a massive upsurge. And when you have that many people turning out, you know, fact that it was illegal just didn't make a damn bit of difference yeah and you know it's wonderful because they were they wouldn't compromise they wouldn't take the compromise offer and what did they end up doing they won the pay raise for all of the government employees that's right (laughs) not just teachers so and they had they won they won uh, allies among the parents and the students all their students around i had a um i have a a person i know uh, lives nearby yeah, I'm a, we're only 10 miles from the West Virginia border, so she teaches school over in Hancock County in West Virginia, and uh, so she was on strike. So she was, you know, I posted something about the strike on my, on my uh, Facebook page, and so she jumped in, and so she started talking about it, and so I went, kept going back and forth with her, you know, and um, talking to her about it and drawing her up, and she says, you know, she said, I told her that she was, you know, Gaining some, she said, class consciousness. She said, "You know what? I went into this strike. I'm, I'm, I'm a proletarian, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and I see all my allies. I see I'm rooting for the Oklahoma teachers and everything." So, okay, Carl, we need to take another break. <laughs> okay. This is great. This is wonderful. Carl Davidson is our guest. I'm Thorn Dryer. This is Rag Radio, and we'll be with you in a minute.
Okay, we're back. I'm Thorne Dreyer. This is RAG Radio. We want to thank Tracy Schultz and Susie Sheeler who are here with us in the, st in the studio. Uh, Roger Baker isn't here today, uh, but, uh, you know, we have, we're holding, we, we, we have plenty of <laughs> troops to hold the, <laughs> hold the fort. Yeah, we're holding it down if for we can, If we can, go, you know, try to get away from that analogy, I guess. Carl Davidson uh, is our is our guest and uh we love having you on carl it's it's always it, it's always great we did a couple of shows in the past with carl and are you there yeah I'm here. Oh, okay because we were <laughs> are you there uh, uh we did a couple of shows with carl and tom hayden uh which was or, or we did i guess maybe one with you and tom and then you were we did a show after tom died yeah, with uh, me and Arthur Waskow. With Arthur Waskow, uh, right. Rabbi Waskow. And, um, and we did a wonderful show uh, about, um, uh, about the cooperative movement, uh, about Mondragon. Uh, right. And that was terrific. So it's been, you, you, you light up our day. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, that's good. Do we have some music to illustrate that? <laughs> light a match over there. Um, so anyway... Uh, is there anything else that you want to say about politics? Well, I mean, what do you think about the West Virginia? Oh, that's right. I mean, we were talking. Is the wave is going to hit you, and we'll see how, how strong it is. Because you know, Oklahoma is just the north of you guys, so you may you may get you may feel the uh, you know the the waves coming from West Virginia all the way down here to Oklahoma in a few days. Yeah. Wow. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. No, it, should, it should be interesting. Yeah, yeah. You know, Texas is yeah. such a. It's an it's an interesting case because it's not a normal strike. Uh, it, it's a what's called. A, you have to, if you want to understand it, you have to read Rosa Luxemburg, a little pamphlet she called on the mass strike, because it's a. I mean, the usual strike. You know, the unions get a meeting and rah rah, and they assign people to go out and picket lines and different shifts and. You get your strike pay and but you know and all this and it's it's pretty routine, but this wasn't. This was elemental. I don't use the word spontaneous anymore because things. It sounds like there wasn't any planning involved, but there was an enormous amount of planning involved, and it was mainly done by women teachers, and uh, who know how to. And women naturally know how to network better than men, and they had their self. They had their modern tool of coming up with this. Um, you know. A huge upsurge that just took everybody surprise. So that doesn't happen with every strike. It's, a, it's what's called a mass strike, and it and it manages to, you know, step beyond the, the usual categories. And as a result, people develop a lot of consciousness. Now, people in West Virginia have a lot of problems, you know, and part of the problem is that too many of them think they're white, you know, <laughs> and they have a, a, a trouble dealing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so yeah. that you know, and so you know, we know that because you know we got the same problem here, and you know we're just a, we're just a, the the northern tip of it, and uh, so that you know we we understand we we don't want to romanticize this. We still have a lot of ideological and educational work to do. Yeah, there are places though you. where white white skin privilege doesn't bring quite as much privilege as it does in other places. Right. Well, so that's usually the way it works. The places where the white skin privilege, where the you know, where the where the extremes are the most, are usually where the conditions of everybody are the poorest. They've always the white skin privilege has always been most pronounced in the in the areas of the deep south, where Appalachia, where the where the you know black poor and the white poor were uh, lived close together, and it was used to hold them both down. White skin privilege doesn't benefit. Any worker in any fundamental sense, other than a lead, if you want to say a lead weight around your neck, helps you win a race. Well, your privilege only benefits the upper crust; it doesn't benefit anybody else. Right, right, and that's that's been a that's been a problem throughout time. Is the turning? Well, let me put it this way: the guy who invented the term, an old friend of mine named uh, Ted Allen, he used to say, he used to tell us he had all these great little things he told us when we were young, like. No opportunism. Uh, he'd use it. Says, That's like train, trying to nail jello to the wall. Or he would say, The white skin privilege is no more in the interest of any worker than a worm on a hook is in the interest of a fish. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that, you know that, those were very clear sorts of examples he gave. 
Right. And it uh, stuck with me over the years. Uh, okay. What else do we want? Would, would you like to talk about? What else is on your mind? Well, what you th- how do how'd you like uh, Babylon Berlin? I liked it a lot. <laughs> I, well, I thought I it was strong. Did. What yeah. about you? Tell us. Give us your review. Well, see, the thing that's most interesting about it is how full it was of contradictions. And you could see oh, yeah, uh, Weimar yes. Germany and all the all the sharp contradictions in it. You never, I don't, I, I haven't, I think I've rarely seen a portrayal of working class slum poverty and unemployment as graphic as I have in, in that movie and where the heroine, where, you know, the home that she lives in and the conditions that she lives under and how she breaks out of it by being, you know, um, a party girl and a uh, part-time poker. Um, and then uh, you, you see the other side of it, too, the decadence of the rich and, and the, all the tension that this causes and, and the kind of culture that arises from it being a kind of, of culture of uh, a death, deathless culture almost. And that, that's the most uh, the famous song in the cabaret that comes out and does that. And then the other thing that I find interesting about it is every character is flawed. Uh, even the ones you like, at the end, they all make compromises, and the compromises they make are what sets the, sets the stage for fascism. And so I think that's the lesson for it, if you really dig deeply into it. But I love the, the music scene. Um, you know, it's a cabaret that just blew me away. They're very powerful. Another show that was kind of set in a, sort of a similar era and with a similar, some kind of similar themes was uh, Peaky Blinders. Yes. Peaky Blinders is one of my other favorites. I'm, I'm savoring, I'm, I'm holding up the, the next season uh, so I can watch it all at once. But Peaky Blinders. <laughs> in one night show. and morning? <laughs> <laughs> I'll maybe start on a Sunday morning and go, yeah. and go through them, but um, try to convince Lynn to watch it with me. She, she, she wasn't that. I said, well, I said, what's not to like in this thing? You got, you got, you got communists, you got working class street gangs, you got veterans returning from World War One who are stressed out, you got sex, you got people hitting each other, you got great <laughs> rock and roll music. I said, what the hell is not to like? <laughs> Especially the people hitting each other. That's, but then that's pretty common these days. <laughs> now I have to watch it. Oh, it's, oh, have to watch it. Well, it's an, and one of the things that's happened with uh, with the stuff that's being produced, especially for Netflix, but also for the other streaming services, is right. that the production qualities are so fantastic. They are so great. The art direction, the, I mean, they're putting a lot of money, uh, money into those, in, into those uh, productions, and, and, uh, and it, it makes what's happening on regular television pale in comparison. Or even the regular theater. Art regular theater, and it offers it the the whole bin, the whole way that those things are organized. It's not like a weekly television show. I mean, it's a continuing story, but it doesn't have the limitations that that a movie theater that a movie has that a film has. I would Uh, go to the movie theater to watch a ten-hour movie. No one. Well, you can have have, have (laughs) ten one-hour sessions of Peaky Blinders, and you might watch half of them one day and half of them the next day. But, but. In the, when you have 10 hours to develop characters and plots, and yes. you can do a hell of a lot more than you can do even in a regular feature-length Hollywood movie. You become so invested. I, yeah, for sure. You become invested. Have you in seen Foil's War? No. That's another one. No. Absolutely. Must see. Put it at the top of your list. Okay. It's a little, it's not nearly people hitting each other and stuff so much, but it's <laughs> terrific. It's terrific on, on the class Lower analysis. on the hit meter. Uh, it's, uh, class analysis of Britain. In, uh, leading up to the first uh, second, second World War, and uh, the um, uh, the hero and the heroine are terrific, and uh, you'll just love it. Foils War, it's called. Okay, we promised culture. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, okay, now uh, and we're down to about nine, about eight minutes. Uh, um, I want your prog- you know I want Davidson the prognosticator <laughs> with your I want to know what you see happening you know if you're if you're optimistic or pessimistic what trends you see you know fighting each other I mean what are you looking at Well if you notice that one phrase I used in that little message I sent you is what I call the the next left 
and um, you stumbled over it and called it the new, uh, the new left, which everybody. But does then I corrected do. myself. And yeah, and including <laughs> me, I do the same thing. I yeah. do the same thing. Uh, but the next left is an interesting phenomenon. DSA is one stream of it, yeah. and uh, DSA is kind of unique in the sense that it was used to be part of the, the older left too. Um, but with, since all of these young people have taken it over. Um, the older DSA is really a, a small minority of the leadership now, and so it's really defined as a millennial left organization now. But the thing, um, keep in mind, is it's not by itself. There's two other ones, two other ones that make up the next left. One is called Left Roots, and um, it has now about a thousand members. And uh, but it's a cadre organization, and most of this cadre are people of color. Not entirely. There's, there's maybe twenty percent, ten percent whites, and uh, and uh, they're based mainly in trade unions and NGOs, for want of a better term. And uh, so they lead, they're in key positions in all of these much larger organizations, and um, they've just held their first Congress, and they've developed a a new paper. And if you go to leftroots.net, you can find some of the stuff. And they're trying to develop a new strategy based not so much on old people's, oh, the old thinkers, but they, they emphasize um, um, Marta Harniger um, from um, from Latin from Cuba and Chile, and uh, and Amalcar Cabral and some of these people, and um, they they come up with a, a pretty interesting program, uh, and so they represent a very important trend. And uh, they allow old folks like me to become what they call compass, which is you know a combination of compañero and compañera, which means uh, we get to give them money and and they give us um, a place <laughs> to talk now and then give them advice. <laughs> but anyway, it's a, it's a very good idea. Okay, what about the uh, right? What about the right wing? Oh no, no, I got one more. This guy called it. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, you did have that. Yeah, there's three. It was started by an outfit called Philly Socialists, and they used the old Black Panther Party model of, uh, of organizing, even though they were mostly white at the time. And so now they've multiplied. They're in about 20 different cities. They're Kentucky Workers League and Silk City Socialists in Patterson, New Jersey, and, and I have three different groups in West Virginia, and they're all over the place now. And they are starting to group into their own sort of national trend or whatever, and they think of themselves as base builders. So I asked Philly Socialists what their strategy was, and they said, our, our strategy is, to, is uh, to take over the Philadelphia City Council in 40 years. And uh, so that's what they're trying to do. They're doing it in an interesting way. They organize the unorganized. They organize among people nobody else is organizing. Because, you know, the rest of the left, they usually focus on you know, the, you know the progressive wing of the Democratic Party or the trade unions or stuff. They said they their views. Ninety percent of the workers have no union at all. So they said, let the rest of the left fight over the unions. We're going to organize this other ninety percent. But they do it with things like tenant unions and stuff like that. And they have what they call serve the people programs, which they borrow from the Panthers, and then fight the power programs, which is you know what their tenants union or stuff does. So they're they're doing pretty well. Anyway, those are the three groupings to, to watch, and to if the three of them were managed to work closely together or even merge at some point, we would have what Gramsci calls the modern prince, and we would then be able to really do something. Yeah. As far as the right wing is concerned, you know, um, it is, you know, Trump has given a lot of it legitimacy. Um, far beyond what anybody else, anybody expected them before. You know, people who are who's students of the far right have known some of these groups have been around, but now they're out and they're much more out in the open, like the Oath Keepers. You know, which is you know they they had a demonstration in Washington at one point, hundreds of thousands of people, and uh, these are the you know the guys who walk around with their Oath Keeper uniforms on and carry uh, AR-15s and. God knows what else, and they're uniformed, and uh, they showed up on the streets of, um, you know, in there in St. Louis uh, during the the uprising there around uh, Brown, and um, now they're uh, saying that they're going to they're starting to patrol high schools. So here you have the militia 
uh, the armed right-wing militias coming out in a way that, uh, with a kind of legitimacy that they never had before. And in fact, it fits in with Trump's talk about, you know, giving guns to every teacher or finding some way to have an armed guard around NRA members or veterans guarding each school. This is where, you know, these uh, militia groups begin to get some, begin to enter the mainstream. And, you know, there are militia, I mean, when you look at, say, Southern Poverty Law Center or whatever, these groups, uh, Southern... Did I say that right? Yeah. I don't ever yes, say that, anything that, right that, anymore. Right. <laughs> I check them Well, occasionally, occasionally I do. Uh, right. I mispronounced Gromsky. But uh, I think, but I don't even remember that. No, you're doing all right. <laughs> Did I? Doing all right. Am I okay? <laughs> uh, um, now, now I've... Oh, the, it's just there's so much. And, and there's, there's a lot of stuff that's come, that's come above the surface, but there's so much that we don't even know about that, that are, you know, that researchers are... are you know, taking note of. And who decides if those militias are well regulated? I mean, (laughs) you mean to have guns? Yeah. (laughs) Well regulated. And I I think, I think the, the alt-right has been very clever, you know, instead of calling themselves white supremacists, you know, outright, they just say, well, we're white nationalists, you know, and uh, we think everybody should be nationalists. Black nationalists are okay. And so we can be white nationalists too. And all nationalisms are equal, you know, just as long as we stay away from each other. You know? yeah. I mean, okay. we know that's a cover, and but they, they find all the... And then there's this whole Europa thing, you know. Um, that whole trend among the... Yeah. Uh, you know, tries to get mainly a university base. Okay, Carl, we're down to about 20... 15 seconds. So do you have any final word? Because no, we're done. Uh, organization is a central task. Revolutionary education is a key link. Okay. <laughs> we'll leave it there. Thank you, Carl <laughs> Davidson. It's been great, great. and we'll Thank do it you. again soon. Uh, I'm Thorne Dreyer. This is RAG Radio. We'll catch you next week.